Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the Old Testament book of Hosea. Now, I know fear has just gripped you um, when I say to find the Old Testament book of Hosea. Um, if you go past the Psalms and past the big prophets of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, then you get to that series of little tiny books at the end of the Old Testament. And Hosea is one of the first ones in that series right after Daniel. Um, if you get to Matthew, you've gone too far. Um, but, uh, but you're not far off uh, from Hosea, even when you get to Matthew. Um, hopefully I've stalled long enough that you're, uh, that you're there. Hosea is a 8th century B.C. prophet in Israel. Uh, the nation has undergone successive cycles, endless cycles um, of unfaithfulness, and he is called by God uh, to speak against the evil that he sees, but he's called to do it in a unique way, um, maybe different from many of the other prophets. Um, he does it in part by speaking, but he also does it by what we'll call biography. God tells him to go find a prostitute named Gomer and to marry her and to have children with her. And he does. And then she goes away back into prostitution uh, because she likes it. And so he goes and she, uh, to find her being auctioned off on, in a slave market. And God says, go buy her back. He's illustrating his love for his people to his unfaithful, faithless people. Um, and yet he is pursuing and persisting. That largely goes on in the first three chapters of Hosea. And then the fourth chapter on to the end of the book is Hosea's preaching. We're going to be in Hosea chapter 11 this morning, and I'm going to read the first nine verses. Before I do, let's ask the Lord's blessing on his reading and preaching of his word. Father, you tell us that all scripture has been breathed out um, by uh, you uh, as chosen men were carried along by the Spirit. Uh, That same Spirit that has given us your word that raised Jesus from the dead Uh, that sustains the universe by the word of your power, Lord, would you bring that power to bear on our hearts this morning, uh, that we might um, read, hear, learn, mark, and inwardly digest. And all for Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Hosea chapter 11, this is um, God speaking in Hosea speaking for God, but this is actually God speaking uh, in in these verses. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? 
How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Thus far, God's inerrant and infallible word. Heresies kill people. They kill people's souls, which is why heresies are such an ever-present danger in the church and why we have to be vigilant against them. One of the heresies that has abounded in the Christian church going back to the uh, just after uh, Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension was the idea that somehow there was this angry, mean God in the Old Testament who was in any minute going to send lightning and earthquakes and fire and sulfur from heaven and destroy things. But that then when we get to the New Testament, here is Jesus who is just peaches and cream and love and, you know, walked around like a hippie in a bathrobe and sandals and, um, and just was preaching peace and love and unity. Now, when people tell you that, you, you know immediately they haven't ever actually opened a Bible <laughs> because that is not the picture of God in the Old Testament, nor is it the picture of Jesus in the New Testament. When he speaks and preaches about uh, the fires of hell that uh, don't extinguish the worm and eternal judgment, but nevertheless, that, that, that picture remains out there sort of popularly, and I think the enemy uses it sometimes uh, to make us uh, have a, uh, a false picture of what God is really like. One of the things I find I'm, you know, doing, we all, as we get older, start doing things like our parents, and we hear our parents, and we see our parents and ourselves, and one of the things I've started doing in the last 10 years is opening and looking at the obituaries in the Raleigh newspaper every morning. Uh, my mother still does that. She says she does it uh, to make sure she's not in there um, first. Um, and then, you know, you look and you, for, I'm, once a week, there's an old school teacher, somebody I used to work with, whatnot, that will be in there. The most interesting obituaries, though, are the ones that have two pictures. And there might be a picture of, of an older man, perhaps in his upper 80s to 90s. And then next to it, there's a picture of him when he was a soldier in World War II. And you can see the, the image through the eyes or the chin or the shape of the face. There'll be a picture of, a, of, a, of an older, distinguished-looking lady, and yet then next to it, there's the picture of her when she graduated from high school or college. And there's correspondence there across, and you see how people uh, have changed over time. Well, our understanding of God evolves as we get more redemptive history, but understand that it is the same. Jesus, it, Jesus, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we just need to go back and read our Bibles more closely, and we see wonderful pictures of the love of God. The love of God didn't show up in a stall in Bethlehem one dark night. The love of God 
has been shown to us in creation, and we can go all the way back to the garden, and even in God's judgment on sin to see his love. Well, this morning, I want us to look um, at a picture of God that is maybe different from the one you thought you'd see in an Old Testament prophet. People, I think, still struggle with thinking God is either angry and perpetually angry, and that is his chief characteristic, or they think he is cold and stony and is, is pulled away from his congregation. I was driving in this morning on Friendly Avenue, and there was one of the mainline churches further out Friendly Avenue, and on their whiteboard out front it said, God is love, God is here. I don't know what in the world that meant, and I'm not sure they did. Uh, But they've taken one verse from John's epistles that God is love and universalized that and have not given it any content. Well, this morning as we move through these nine verses of Hosea, uh, I think God fills in the content and he shows us a picture of love that I want us to chew on for just a, a little while. Beginning in verse one, I want us to see a bit about the tenderness of God's love. God's love for His people in Israel uh, 2,800, 2,900 years ago, and God's love for His people yet still, and God's love for you. Not just everybody in the room corporately, but God's love for you if you are in Christ. Look at this tender love in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. There is an intimacy to this language. It reminds me a little bit of John 17, what we refer to as the high priestly prayer, where we're listening in on something it almost sounds like we shouldn't be listening into. But it shows us the the heart of God, and I think Hosea 11 does as well. Israel is a child, I loved him. Israel became a nation, of course, when she left Egypt. A family goes down to Egypt. A nation, hundreds of years later, emerges. And God says, I, I was there. I-, I called my son out of Egypt. I-, I-, I led my son. You know, we always think, I'll, I'll let you in on a-, a secret for you younger parents and you children, your parents will always think of you like your children, I mean, mentally and emotionally, you think of them that way. My, my kids are 32, 29, and 26, and I think of them as about 7, 4, and 1. Um, and, and that's not because they're doing stupid things, although they're certainly, you know, capable of that. But, but, it's, but isn't there, having lived through those years... Don't we as parents always have a tender love for our children in a way that makes it well nigh impossible for us to say no to them in an ultimate way? We would do anything we could. And God is is giving us a picture that says that is his love for his covenant people. That is the tenderness of his love. He says, I loved him. I called him my son. I've met a lot of people in my life. And I know a a smaller group than that. And I know really well a smaller group than that. But there are only a few I've called my son. 
And God says, I, of, I freely called Israel my son. And yet, look how they react, verse 2. God is patiently teaching. And, and he is wooing this child and correcting and training this child. And yet, the more they were called, the more they went away. You, you, you feel a father's pain in that. Now, now, let me pause for a second and say we're talking about what we call anthropomorphic language. You can be a, live a long, happy Christian life and not know that word, and so don't feel like, don't get hung up on that. It is God using language at a human scale to, so that we can understand. So when we talk about the Lord's arm is not short, or the eyes of the Lord move to and fro across the earth, we know that God doesn't have an actual physical arm or actually physical eyes that are maybe just really big so they can see the world at one time. But it's language that helps us understand through that sign, through that symbol, a greater reality, a reality that is beyond our finite mind and our fallen mind's ability to understand. So understand, when, when God speaks this way, the more they were called, the more they went away, and yet if this is this child that I loved, this, this broken-hearted parent. Understand, God is not a broken-hearted parent, but the reality is far greater than that. The, the reality is not limited by the, this, this metaphor he's giving us. The reality is far more wonderful and grand than that. And so you see this child, this nation, this people that he has worked with and he has trained. And he says, the more they were called, the more they went away. This wasn't ignorance. This wasn't the kind of children Eric was talking about during the announcements, you know, that if your child is having trouble, maybe go out, but then come back in. No, this is treason. This is a child who knows exactly what he is doing in Israel, and he is choosing. And so we know what is coming due. And God is not in unjust he, he is not giving Israel a raw deal. Israel is going to get exactly what she deserves. But, but, look, he says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. He, he was speaking about Israel, but now it's as if he's using that intimate little nickname the kind of nicknames sometimes we have in our families that no one else knows what they are. Our daughter is named Anna Scott, and all of her friends have always called her Scotty. And just, I'm the only person that calls her Annie. And that's just kind of how I talk to her. And this is God saying, oh, Ephraim, oh, Ephraim. I taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. 
Our, our youngest grandchild is um, almost four, and she instinctively knows I'm going to pick her up. And so now as she gets bigger, it's almost like a contest. She comes running at me, and I need to be ready because she's just going to kind of go airborne about three feet before she gets to me, and I need to be ready. And if she, she doesn't know, realize my peripheral vision, I can't see her coming, but I have to instantly react. It's that tender love that God has had for these people. And yet, verse, at the end of verse 2, they kept sacrificing to Baals. To sacrifice to Baal in the ancient world was to go up to a temple that would also be fairly described as a brothel. And you went in, the men went in, and the idea was if they would um, carouse and be drunken and be intimate with these temple prostitutes, that Baal, uh, the god of the harvest and of fertility, Baal and his wife would look down and find that sort of arousing, and that they would then be intimate together, and there would be a great harvest, and the rains would come, and the, the crops would do well. And God says, I have treated you like a child. I, I have treated you tenderly. And yet, they kept sacrificing to the Baals. You, you hear the, the, the broken heartedness, if we can put it that way. Again, a picture. God is not broken hearted. What God feels toward his covenant people is, is far far greater than that and beyond our ability to understand. But he says, it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up. They didn't know that I healed them. You know, it'd be like, children, if you're in school and you have assignments, it, it would be like if you just decided, I'm just not doing my homework and I don't care what happens to me. And that your father would, or mother would come in at night and they would fill out your assignments. And they would do the reading. And they would do the project. I remember being a Cub Scout, maybe six or seven years old, in the Pinewood Derby. And you had to make the little wooden cars um, to race down the track. And my dad and I went out in the garage and we made um, just ugly shavings. <laughs> um, and, and there was just, this thing looked like, you know, the four-year-olds in vacation Bible school had done it as a project, you know, to go on the refrigerator wall. And I got up the next morning, and there was this beautiful race car, perfectly painted and everything. And I think my dad had stayed out there till like 4 a.m. working on this car. Here's God saying, um, they didn't know that I healed them. I, I, was, I was kind beyond what they could see. His concern was that his people be cared for and looked after. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. And yet, and yet they go. I became to them as one who eases the yoke. You know, you picture a, a, a burden, a beast of burden, a, a horse or a donkey or a mule, and the, the bit and the bridle have been put on improperly, and the animal is in real pain, and someone who knows what they're doing comes up, and they begin to make adjustments. 
And they begin to relieve that pain and that pressure. And now the, those, those gear work the way they should. God says, I, I was, that is my love for my people. And he said, I became not only as one who eases the yoke on their joints, I bent down to them and fed them. Think about it. Who do you bend down to? You bend down to people who are on their back. Who have not even the energy to feed themselves. And he said, that is, that is the tenderness of God's love for his people and for you. That he leans down and he feeds us when we have nothing. But that sort of weaves us into thinking as well in this, another aspect of this tender love of God is the persistence of God's love. Think about, they turn away. And they rebel, and God brings them to heal, and he blesses them. And this cycle goes on and on. Verse 5, it's, it's as if he's, again, this is just literarily speaking, he, he's out of that mode, and he's back to saying things that are absolutely true. They shall not return to the land of Egypt. Assyria shall be their king. Friends, Assyria being your king would be like my saying, there have just been 50 vehicles full of Hamas terrorists who have just pulled up outside, um, and, they, and, and we're in Israel on October 7th. Um, the Assyrians didn't play by um, the Geneva Convention. Uh, they didn't play by the rules. They were a vicious and wicked army who showed no mercy to anyone they encountered. And this is God saying, Assyria will be their king because they refuse to turn to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, devour them because of their counsels. And yet, look at that first word in verse 7. My people. They're still my people. They, they, they deserve this justice. They deserve judgment. They deserve punishment for their sin. He has been patient, not just seven times, but 70 times seven and beyond, and yet they still turn away. They are bent on it, and yet they are my people. And though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all, which means He still hears. He's he's bringing that judgment. His holiness is vindicated. He cannot tolerate their rebellion and their rejection. You'd think he'd give them up completely. Matter of fact, Hosea would would vindicate God perfectly if the whole book just ended at the end of verse 7. And he shall not raise them up at all. And we would, if we were in our right minds, say, yep, that's pretty much what they deserved. And that's what I deserve too. But then there's verse 8. And this gets us to thinking about the cost of God's love. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? There is an anguish in that cry. It's almost the anguish of the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can I give you up? How can I hand you over? These two cities, Adma and Zeboim, 
They were like the Oak Ridge, Kernersville, um, Pleasant Garden, and um, Summerfield of Sodom and Gomorrah. And they were caught up in Sodom and Gomorrah, we're told in Deuteronomy 29, and they were destroyed at the same time because they were right there on the plain with those cities. He says, how can I treat my people? How can I treat Ephraim? How can I, 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 I treat this child that I've loved, that I called out of Egypt as my son? How can I hand you over? How can I bring fire and sulfur and judgment and earthquakes and pestilence and judgment eternally on you? It says, my heart recoils within me because, my, if you will, because my compassion grows warm and tender. And then he says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. And that ought to raise a question. How are you not going to do that? To, to promise justice, to promise um, is God did in the garden. On the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And for God to say, my people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, He shall not raise them up at all. How can that God, who is unchangeable, who is immutable, who is impassable, how can He then also say, my heart recoils within me, my compassion grows warm and tender, I will not execute my burning anger. How can he still be God? How can he still be righteous and holy and yet have compassion for these people whom he loves with the tenderness that drives him to cry out, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I do this? I think the key is in verse 9. It is the tender love of a father that says, I will not execute my burning anger against them. Oh, he would discipline them and they would know a a hard season under the Assyrians. But he would preserve that remnant. He would preserve the godly for himself. He says, "I, I, I will not execute my burning anger against them. I will not destroy Ephraim. Because it's as if those last lines of verse 9, this is, I hope, sanctified speculation. But when I read these verses, I hear a father in anguish. And then it's as if the son speaks up. And he says, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. The Father will pour out the wrath that Adma and Zeboim knew, but he'll do it on his son. He'll do it on his son who will be bound by Roman authorities, seized by the temple police bound with tight cords and subjected to the whip so that you and I 
could be led with cords of kindness and with bands of love. And Jesus would take a cross and carry that cross piece on the road to Golgotha. He, he would endure the, the most horrific three hours any human being has ever endured. He would, he would take on himself all of the, the wrath of the rightful, godly, if I can say that, wrath of his father. He responds in obedience to his father. Because remember, it is God who so loved the world that he gave his only son. It is God the father who so loved the world that he gave his only son. The Father sends him, and Jesus goes. And that's how this tension in Hosea 11 is resolved. Because God is righteous and holy, and yet God loves people who come to him and cry out to him in Christ. And how those are put together is at the cross. They're put together when Jesus says, it took, in fact, say before Jesus says, I will go, it would take one who is both God and man. And it wouldn't take a man saying, I will take on the nature of God. It took God saying, I will take on the nature of a man. And the Holy One would come and be in our midst. In fact, John tells us he would tabernacle among us. He would dwell among us. And he would take our sins on himself and our sickness on himself. He would take our insanity and our madness upon himself that we might be healed. And that first time he came, he says, and I will not come in wrath. Jesus will come the second time in wrath. And he will execute his righteous and good judgment against sin and against sinners. But to all who flee to him... He will instead lead them with the cords of kindness and the bands of love. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? Because I'm going to hand my son over so that I don't have to give you up, O Ephraim, O Israel. As we wrap this up this morning, let me leave you with the question, can God's love ever run out? Will that fountain ever run dry? Will he he ever find that the relational bank account has just been overdrawn and he's tired of covering the bad checks and so he's just done with us or he's done with you and you say yeah but I have confessed the same sin to him over and over and over and over again and surely he's getting tired of that and if your name is John He would say, but how can I give you up, John? And if your name is Elizabeth, he would say, but how can I hand you over, O Elizabeth? Insert your name here. Such is his tender, persistent love. 
for sinners. See, love isn't just this thing that goes on a whiteboard as you drive down Friendly Avenue. Hosea shows us what love requires. Love requires holiness and justice and righteousness. And love moves. And love sends His own Son so that you and I might know life. Hosea shows us how persistent this sin is. But there's something more persistent, and it's the love of God for His people. Friend, you are loved with an everlasting love. An everlasting love that did not begin when the Holy Spirit came to Mary. But with an everlasting love, Paul says, since before the foundation of the world. And he will not give you up. He will not hand you over. He he will not say... I'm not going to raise them up. They'll call out to me and I won't hear them. If you are in Christ Jesus, your sin has been paid for. Its power has been broken. And God is not angry with you. He is not a big angry piece of granite like Stone Mountain. But he is tender. He is tender to all who will flee to him. <laughs> I can't give you up, O Ephraim. I can't hand you over, O Israel. And the son would say in the garden, Father, if there is any way, let this cup pass. And there is no other way. And so God does what we could never do for ourselves. And he does that out of his love for his people. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that the enemy often tells us that surely you're done with us. Surely we have failed you yet again. Lord, forgive us when we don't know you as you really are. Thank you for this passage in Hosea 11 that gives us this peak. Lord, we know it's pictures. And yet we know that the reality is far greater than what you can picture to our feeble fallen minds. Lord, give us grace to believe these things. Uh, Give us grace when we stand against the enemy's onslaught to know that you will never give us up. You will never hand us over, that we are secure in Christ Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.